evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. What? I'm, I'm not ready. Too bad. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. <laughs> All right, so we got an old Chewy McGraham cracker <laughs> over here. Man, you couldn't let me finish. No, no, we're doing it when we're doing it. I'm sorry. <laughs> God dang. <laughs> it is what it is, and we're rolling with it. Ugh. So other than chewing, you doing all right tonight, Matt? Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing okay now. <laughs> See, that that's how unprepared we are. We got Matt eating in the studio, and it's amazing. Ugh. He'll be picking graham cracker out of his teeth for the rest of this I, episode. I'm, I'm going to be picking it out of the pot filter on my <laughs> mic. You know? It's a wonder I didn't spit it all over your face. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, more authenticity, you know. Hey, you know, Adam Adam did a spit take almost last show. That's so. true. That's true. He, he so. would have he gotten some back. <laughs> All right. So some of y'all may know if y'all are in our Facebook group or on our Twitter, we now have a website. So it is www.graveyardpodcast.com. So go check it out. You can... You can hear all of our episodes from there. There's little short bios of me and Matt on there, and we're going to start putting up pictures for each episode that kind of go along with the episode and all that stuff. Yeah. And go check it out. It it it's a cool website. I'm still chewing. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh yeah, it's cool. We're uh we're we're branching out a little bit. So, um, be sure and go check it out. Um, a lot of people have have been interested in. Uh, what the graveyard looks like, what what we look like, which I don't know why any of any of you would want to see that. Yeah, you know, I'm, it's because I'm a model. You know? <sighs> yeah. He's a model something. Yeah. <laughs> model prisoner. That'll make sense in a minute. Speaking of prisoner. Yeah. Uh, we also have merch available at tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash graveyard. So go get you some shirts or some pillows or something. We are also going to be off next week. Next week is our off week, so don't expect an episode because I'm going to be going back to Texas. I'm taking a vacation, driving back, and I'm going to be there all week. So we'll just be doing research for the next episode, and hopefully we have enough time. Yeah, and next week is spring break for all of my children's. Yep. So, so they're going to be crawling all over the place. Right. So we've got a graveyard off week next week, but y'all just go back and listen to our catalog that we've got of the other 19 episodes we've got, or go listen to the podcast that we run their promos for. Yeah, yeah it, it's it, a good it's a good time to go check out some of the other shows that are friends of ours. Right. And, you know, hit them up, tell them you heard about them from us, and that would be great. Now Keep sending us your urban legends and your personal stories. We've been getting some really awesome ones. It's great. And just keep sending them because we don't know exactly when we're going to do it yet. So you've got a little bit of time, but we're getting all the stuff together so we can do it. Also, got an update on the bag of hands in Russia. (laughs) Um, If y'all remember the bag of hands story. The uh, Russian handbag. Yes, the old Russian handbag. We got an update here. I'll read the story for you, and it'll give you like a recap if you don't know anything about it. 
A fisherman in Siberia made a grisly discovery walking along a riverbank last week. A bag containing 27 pairs of human hands severed at the wrist. But according to the Russian government, it's not the work of a hand-obsessed killer, but a forensics laboratory, which was improperly disposing of its bio-waste. According to the Siberian Times, the fisherman initially spotted just one hand peeking out of the snow as he walked by the Amur River in the southeastern Russian city of that one that I couldn't pronounce last week either. That discovery led to the fisherman led the fisherman to the nearby bag, which also contained medical bandages and a plastic shoe covering commonly used in clean facilities such as laboratories and hospitals. Initially, the provenance of the 54 hands was unknown, but the investigative committee of the Russian Federation acted swiftly and determined their origin was a Kabarovsky, yeah, that name, based forensic laboratory. I apologize. I cannot speak Russian. I apologize to any people in Russia who are listening for me just slaughtering that. <laughs> the biological objects or hands were found that were found are not of criminal origin, but were disposed of in a manner not provided by law. So this was by the telegram messenger in Russia, apparently. It's not known why the laboratory severed the hands in the first place. Sometimes hands and feet are the only parts of the deceased recovered, although the sheer quantity in the bag makes the explanation seem unlikely. The removal may have also been for identification purposes, a practice that is not unheard of. Controversially, back in 1989, a UK coroner severed the hands of 25 disaster victims to record fingerprints before deterioration could set in. But those were extreme circumstances, and the decision attracted significant attention. So what they're saying is that it's not a serial killer or anything, as Matt and I postulated last week. It was fun, though. Yeah, I, I I still think it could be a serial killer or something like that i mean this is just their way to explain it away right it's like Make no people quit looking at them it's not a, a russian mobster it's our forensics lab so in other news um y'all may have seen this in the news or what but we're going to read it to you and we're going to put up a picture and a link on the website along with this episode so you can go check it out but apparently and this is the clickbait headline. It says, Loch Ness Monster Found? Shocking picture of unidentified sea creature. Yay. So, shocking pictures of a Loch Ness Monster-type beast found on a U.S. beach have sparked talk Nessie could have moved stateside. The mystery creature was reportedly found on Wolf Island, Georgia, by a father and son who were on a boat trip. Father Jeff Warren spotted what he said he thought was a dead seal lying in the surf, according to First Coast News. But upon closer inspection, Warren said it became clear he had no idea what the animal was. The images show the supposed carcass, which Warren said was being eaten by birds when he arrived, laying in the sand. It appears to have a long tail and two fins, as well as a long neck and a tiny head. Features usually associated with Nessie in popular culture. The creature was reportedly about one to two meters in length. Experts have so far been unable to positively identify the animal from the photos and the video footage. Dan Ash, director of the Fish and Wildlife Service, told Action News 
<laughs> told Action News Jax, I like that, that some <laughs> sea animals have a way of decomposing where they can resemble a prehistoric creature. Likely explanation. Mm-hmm. Again, let's just explain it away. Yeah. Take the fun out of everything. Well, and it it's one of those, uh, hey, look over here uh, expl- explanations, <laughs> because does that make sense? Oh, he's decomposing, so he looks like a prehistoric creature, like a Tyrannosaurus rex, you know, as... <laughs> because we all we've seen is a Tyrannosaurus rex skeleton. Right, as, you know, uh, seals decompose, they start looking like a plesiosaur. I have never seen a seal decomposing that looks like a plesiosaur. Yeah, it looks like a dead seal. Yeah, I have never seen anything start decomposing that then starts looking like a prehistoric creature. So this feller, Dan Ash, I don't believe you, Dan. (laughs) Try again. (laughs) Anyway, go look at the website if you want to see pictures of this thing that is supposedly sea life that's decaying that now looks like a miniature plesiosaur. Right. And, you know, I, I've mentioned this before. The The oceans have been just, there's so much that we haven't been able to explore. Right. You know, the all, all the newest species that are are found typically are, are found in places where people aren't. You know, rainforests, oceans. Mm-hmm. You know, the likelihood, I mean... Everybody thought we there was a giant squid. Yep. But, it, you know, it's just been recently that we've got video footage of a giant right. squid. Well, the, the coelacanth. You know, we thought yeah. the coelacanth was extinct. Extinct, yeah. And then, lo and behold, it just lives way down deep where we don't get normally. Yeah. And now we know the coelacanth is still around, and we don't need to say that it's some you know, decomposing seal that's actually the coelacanth. No, you know, let's just look at it objectively here, Dan, and not say that it's something, (laughs) just some jackass explanation for it. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, when they they found that that coelacanth specimen off the coast of Madagascar, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happens around Madagascar. Oh, yeah, man. I was actually watching a documentary <laughs> last night on Madagascar, it's, believe it or it's not. It's one of these places that, you know, hey, it's some weirdo stuff. But, you know, everything seems to happen around there. They're yep. in, you know, like Galapagos. And, right. You know, that, you know, those places where, you know, there, there's, there's animal species that aren't found anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, there's plant life that shouldn't be growing there. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that kind of stuff, it, you know, it, it's kind of mysterious and, and, and cool in the same respect. So, right. um, you know, the, the odds are there is some animal that looks like Nessie or could be oh, mistaken yeah. for, and it's out there and we've just never found one or caught one. You know, I bet, it, I bet there's some guy out there that's seen one and says, yeah, oh an yeah, old fisherman. We, we call them, you know, Duma Flitchers or whatever. Yeah. You know. I caught a Duma Flitcher last weekend. No, I <laughs> You brought up Madagascar, and I... I you need to get a prescription yeah. for that. <laughs> you just get a shot, and it's the Duma Fletcher's gone. Um, you brought up Madagascar. I hadn't planned on talking about this. Yeah, but here, here's a tangent for you yeah, right here's now. Here's a tangent. Um, last night, I was watching a documentary on Madagascar, and they were showing the different lemur species in Madagascar, and there's a ton of them. There's like a ton of different lemurs. Well, there's this one species, and I can't remember the name because this is spur of the moment off you know, right. off the cuff here. Um, it's like two to three foot tall. 
And if you see this thing moving around. That's King Julian, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you see this thing moving around, it looks like a little hairy person. Like if you didn't know this was a lemur, like I was laying there half asleep and it came on and I heard him say lemur, but it looks like a cryptid to me because it's this furry thing with kind of a dog face and it's jumping around and without scale, it looks like it could be as tall as me, you know, mm-hmm. six foot two and jumping around there with kind of weird looking clampy feet and everything. And that'll freak you out. Yeah. So I, I just, I thought about that when you said Madagascar, these freaky lemur things that that could be explanation for some things, you yeah. know, no, it's just a lemur. I'd rather you say it's a lemur that washed up on the beach than it's some seal that dies that is decaying. That's just stupid. <laughs> But another tangent. That's, you might as well just say that's a, that's a, an old tire. Yeah, it's you know. <laughs> Does it look like that? No, it's just an old tire that's decaying. You know, whatever. Yeah, they um, tend to look like other animals. They do when they decay. Um, another tangent. I I have lost faith in humanity again, again, and the internet again, because today I get I get to work this morning. I'm sitting up at my office at five thirty. And the way my office is, is it it's upstairs and it overlooks the production floor. So I'm sitting up there. There's really nobody else there. There's a couple guys down on the floor. And I'm scrolling through my phone, looking at Facebook and drinking my coffee, trying to wake up. And I see this post. It says Musical Highway, you know, and there's a picture somebody took of the Musical Highway. And it says slow to 45 miles per hour to hear the song. So it's. Basically, road braille is what I call it, that is spaced out in a way where it makes a tune as your tires go over it. So there's a video. So I click the video, and I'm going along listening to the video, and it's pretty cool. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's porn soundtrack. Like, really loud. Just the loudest porn noises you could imagine. (laughs) Right? So... I love it. I I, <laughs> I cuss a couple times and turn it off, you know, back out of it real quick. And I hear dude downstairs start chuckling. And I'm like, oh, God, he heard it, you know. So then I've got to deal with that and, you know, lean my head over the thing, explain what it was. And he's like, I was wondering what you were listening to up there. I'm like, mm-hmm. So thanks, Internet. For, it's the soundtrack of Adam's life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just, it was embarrassing, and I hate people. I really do. <laughs> you people who make those things, I hate y'all. But let's get off of that. Let's get into our potty break this week. And for our potty break promos this week, we have the Conspirators podcast and Notes from the Attic. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unsolved mysteries, survivor stories. I'm Nate Hale, and in each episode of my show, The Conspirators, I dig deep and tell you the stories from history your teacher never told you. I tell you about all things strange and bizarre. And what's scariest of all? These things really happened. If you're interested in creepy history, you can find The Conspirators on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, as well as your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Notes from the Attic. 
The concept of this show is simple. Everyone has a story to tell. This is their chance to tell it. In season one, we take a listen to stories from the past. Think of those stories your grandparents and parents told at Sunday dinner. That's a general idea. We can't do it alone, though. If you or someone you know would be a great storyteller, let us know. Our email is addictnotespod at gmail.com. Or you can leave a message on our studio line at 508-257-1726. Go subscribe to the show on Audio Boom or your podcast player of choice to get the latest and greatest. And remember, everyone has a story. What would yours say? You're listening to America's favorite program, Notes from the Egg. All right. Now, Matt, you you ready for this one? You re- I'm, you're I'm not, ready now. You're not chewing? Okay, good. No. Okay. <laughs> what are we talking about tonight, Matt? Okay, tonight we're going to discuss the old Montana State Prison, which is not just one of the most haunted places in Montana. It's one of the most haunted places in the United States. Right. It's got a really... A long reputation yeah. of hauntings and and just bad omens and all that stuff. And we're kind of getting back to our roots with this one. Yeah. Because our very first episode was of a haunted place, and we haven't done one in a while. Right. And so it, it'll be nice to get back and do one. Yeah, this is where we all started, so. Right. You got can't forget where you came from or something. <laughs> Dance with the one yeah. who brought you. 19 episodes ago, you know. <laughs> yeah. Which, hey, it's episode 20. We've done this 20 times. Right. So, happy 20th, Matt. Yeah, I know. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So, you ask, what is the old Montana State Prison? Did I? Well, no, they did. Oh. Yeah, I heard them. <laughs> you know. I, I, we're telling them. <laughs> I was like, didn't I just... <laughs> yeah. What is that? So, the old Montana State Prison. it The first territorial prison in the western United States... The prison was built by convict labor in the late 1800s. The gray sandstone walls of this immense structure are 24 feet high, and they're buried four feet deep to prevent escape by tunneling. The old prison served as the Montana Prison Territorial Prison from its creation in 1871 until Montana achieved statehood in 1889, and then continued as the primary penal institution for the state of Montana until 1979. Throughout the prison's history, the institution was plagued with constant overcrowding, insufficient funds, and antiquated facilities. The administration of Warden Frank Connolly from 1890 to 1921 proved the exception to this rule, as Warden Connolly instituted extensive inmate labor projects that kept many inmates at work, constructing the prison buildings and walls, as well as providing various state and community services like road building, logging, and ranching. After Connolly left office, the prison experienced almost 40 years of degeneration, mismanagement, and monetary restraints until an explosive riot in 1959 captured the attention of the nation. And I'll get more into that here in just a couple minutes. 
The facility retired in September of 1979, and the inmates were moved to the current prison. The old prison was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1976 and is now a museum. So, in the museum, and there's there's more than just, it's not just a prison museum. I mean, there's a, there's a classic car museum there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's like a toy museum or like a, something like that. Oh, that's not creepy. Uh, yeah, I know. Well, I, I know this. There, there's a display of dolls in the gift shop. Super. Yeah. Makes you really yeah. want to go. I'm there. in a haunted prison and there's um, dolls. But in the, in, the, in the prison part of the museum, um, they've got several displays of things that were commonplace, you know, when the prison was operating. One display actually has a pair of work shoes with concrete soles hmm. in, instead of leather. Super. So they use these sole, these uh, these shoes. They weighed twenty pounds each, and they were ordered to be worn by uh, inmates that were thought to be uh, escape risks. That's where my dad got that idea. <laughs> he made me wear those in high school, so Man. I wouldn't jump out the window. Can you imagine getting up, putting on concrete shoes? No. Be like, I hope we don't go swimming today. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But um, but because convict labor built the a largest portion of the prison compound, over time, inmates fashioned uh, 1.2 million bricks by hand for use in, in building the original 1896 cell house and the other buildings. Stone was quarried nearby and hauled to the site. The convicts cut the timbers and dug the lime for the use in the cement and and the tools and and things like that uh, that the convicts used, you know, they're on display in the museum as well. But just can you imagine, hey, you're going to go to prison, um, but here's a catch. You, you got to build the prison. Right. Like, oh, man. Yeah, build the walls around you. <laughs> oh, gosh. But inside the cell blocks are corridors painted a drab industrial gray with a broad yellow stripe that runs along the floor. Uh, defining the prisoner's walkway. The basement basement shower room is cold and damp. The dripping dripping spigot is the only sound. And uh, they describe the shower in one of the articles I read. It was a single spigot, cold water, and they were required to shower like once a month. Mm-hmm required yeah because this was not a pleasant experience they're not running around there going oh man i need a shower i really could use a shower today (laughs) yeah i I need a real shower with hot water right um heavy metal doors in solitary confinement cells block out all light and sound and these doors insulate the guards on duty inside steel mesh cages from the rage of the isolated men you can imagine you you were not too happy that you had to go there. We're going to no. talk more about how solitary confinement was done um, at the Montana State Prison. But not all the memorabilia is without humor or humanity. Cell number one was occupied by a gentleman named Paul Turkey Pete Eitner. He was convicted of murder and he was sentenced to life in 1918. And Turkey Pete became a model prisoner and was placed in charge of the prison turkey flock. One day, 
there was a farmer coming down the street. Turkey Pete decided that he would sell all the turkeys to this farmer for 25 cents a piece. Why not? Yeah. You know, hey, I got to make money in here somehow. Right. Um, and that's that's where the name came from. And Turkey Pete began to exhibit signs of dementia. Um, but he was so well liked by the staff and by the other inmates that the other inmates printed uh, checks that were that said Eitner Enterprises. And Paul would use these checks to pay guards, like pay their salary, <laughs> not like pay them off. He thought he was running the prison. Right. And they just they just let him believe that, you know, he, he would pay for supplies and expenses and things like that with these bogus dollars. And they estimate that out of these phony these phony checks that they printed for Turkey Pete, he spent like one point two million of these phony <laughs> dollars. But like I said, everybody loved him and he he was he was never paroled. The parole board felt like because of his condition he wouldn't make it on right. the outside. Uh so he he served out forty nine years and died at age eighty nine. And interestingly enough, Turkey Pete was the only person to ever have a funeral inside the prison. That's cool. Yeah. You know, so re- really, uh, really unique uh, characters that were in there. We're going to get some that aren't aren't so pleasant as old Turkey Pete. Yeah, old Turkey Pete's nice. But like Matt said, we got some that are not. But before we get into those, let's kind of talk about the history of the facility. Now, in response to rampant lawlessness and vigilante-style form of justice that was present in the newly formed Montana Territory, in 1867, the U.S. Congress allotted $40,000 to Montana for the express purpose of constructing a territorial prison. Now, on November 19th of 1867, the territorial government chose Deer Lodge as the site of the facility. And on June 2nd, 1870, the cornerstone was laid. Now, the original plans for the building called for a structure which held three tiers of 14 cells. But due to the difficulty of acquiring materials, the cost to ship those materials, and the expense of hiring labor, the new building would house only one of those three tiers. Now, on July 2nd, 1871, U.S. Marshal William Wheeler took possession of the first nine prisoners to be incarcerated in the facility. It only took a single month before the prison was overcrowded. By August, six more prisoners had arrived. And the burgeoning population was quelled somewhat when in 1874, June of 1874, another tier of 14 cells was constructed. And the civilians of Deer Lodge were calmed when a 12-foot board fence went up in 1875. So there's a 12-foot wooden fence that they put up around the exterior of the prison in 1875, which, I mean, that's a good thing. You know, you don't want, if they break out the door, then they're just home free. Right. You know, this is kind of a a stop for that. Now, the prison's population continued to grow. So Congress allocated an additional $15,000 for the construction of another tier of cells. But the soft brick of the building could not support any more weight. Instead, the money went to an administration building with guards barracks, a warden's office, and a visitor's reception. Now, finally, in 1885, $25,000 served to provide the prison 
with a three-story cell block with 42 double-capacity cells, which was completed in 1886. The Montana Territorial... I cannot say territorial tonight. <laughs> you the just did. Terry, Terry, Terry. Terry, Terry. The Montana Territorial Prison. I still can't say I it. still can't do it. <laughs> was finally completed to original specifications just in time to be handed over to the new state of Montana in March of 1890. Now, one thing to remember is that when they built this prison, Montana was not a state. Right. It was still a territory. And, you know, the the timing of this is around, you know, what we what we know is the Wild West. So you can imagine these people that are living around the area of this prison. They're bringing bad dudes up here. I mean, this isn't like, you know, hey, this guy's going to jail for, uh, you know, check fraud. Mm-hmm. You know, well, <laughs> there are those guys, but yeah, there there are those guys. But then there's, you know, the guys that, you know, robbed, a, you know, robbed a train and, mm-hmm. you know, killed seven people. Yeah. You know, Killed everybody a, in a stagecoach for their gold. Right. I mean, you know, so, you know, dragging these people here, you know, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't extremely popular. So you can bet they were very relieved when they start putting up those walls. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Let's keep these jokers inside. Yeah, because, uh, you know, if they if they can break into a bank or they can yeah. anything like that, they could break out of this prison and then they're scot free to run right. through your town. And now you've got a herd of them that you brought into your town yeah. for this prison. Yeah. So, and Adam, you mentioned the the double capacity, mm-hmm. and I say that with I'm doing air quotes. If you can't see them, yeah. but double capacity. Um, if if we have any show that would benefit from while you're listening, go and look up some of the pictures of this prison. It's this one, right? Because you're going to hear us mention things, and and to be able to see them, you're really going to connect with just how cool and creepy this place really is um but the double capacity cells go look at the pictures of those cells Mm -hmm. you know it's barely big enough for one person yeah i think to live in there uh it's uh six foot by eight foot yeah and that's the double capacity yeah people have closets bigger than that yeah right right my house is about six foot by eight foot but that's a whole nother story (laughs) um but yeah and they had to share one cabinet in there and yeah. they they split it in half so you get this half i get that half right and you know six foot by eight foot is not a lot of room no your bedroom is bigger than six foot by eight foot. it sounds like my first dorm room yeah right right I mean, and i was the only one in there yeah you know so and i'm over six feet tall so i couldn't lay down one way in that thing yeah you know but speaking of let's get into the poor conditions of this prison here Although the completion of the cell block meant a roof over the prisoners' heads, the amenities of the facilities were sparse. As we said, the cells measured six foot by eight foot, and it was constructed of soft brick and had no plumbing or artificial lights. The buildings had no heating or ventilation. And in a region which, remember, this is Montana, in a region which often experienced temperatures below negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 34 Celsius in the winter and above 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius in the summer, this made for very uncomfortable tenants, to say the least. To alleviate the discomfort, the administration used wooden stoves to heat the building and oil lamps to light it. 
the smoke from which combined with the stench of bucketed human waste and unwashed bodies to make the environment rank. Yeah. So they did not have plumbing. So in your cell, if you had to go, you went in a bucket. And they had a crew that dumped the buckets. So if you were a bad a bad dude in there and got in trouble, you got put on bucket patrol. Bucket duty. So not a good thing. <laughs> Dump the honey bucket. Right. Ugh. And now Matt had mentioned earlier the solitary confinement. So there was one Halloween that a prisoner was transferred to solitary confinement, which is a cell outside of the main prison. His name was Larry Cheadle. Yeah, and Cheadle was an inmate who had been convicted of stealing cars. And on that night, uh, you know, he uh, he went into the hole and which let's we'll talk about the hole and then we'll tell you what happened to, to Larry Cheadle. Um, the hole, which was what they called the solitary confinement, was an was it consisted of three dark underground cells um, while in the hole. Inmates were given a mattress and a bucket of water. They were given a cup of fresh water and a slice of bread three times a day. Now, on every third day, the inmates in the hole were given a hot meal. So this is where he wanted to go on Halloween. So they put Cheadle in the hole. Eight hours later, the guards go in and he's dead. Now. Officially, Larry Cheadle's cause of death was documented as heart failure. But the most common story is that when the guards found his body, it appeared that he had been cooked. You know, something had heated him up so much that his body had just laid there and cooked until he died. Um, a lot of the people that have have actually visited the prison and taking the trip down into the hole, claimed to feel a sense of dread and that overwhelming feeling that they're about to be attacked. And you can imagine. Oh, yeah. You know, I did read an article that said more people died in the hole at Montana State Prison than died on the gallows. Wow. Yeah. That, you know, that's saying something. So just imagine that you're you're going down into this, this cell and there's no light mm-hmm. and you're locked in. You can't go anywhere. You can't see. You can't see your hand in front of your face. Thick, solid brick walls. Yeah. And I mean, just just imagine the 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 terror that mm-hmm. must fill you when you're down there. And if you're the just, least bit claustrophobic. Uh, yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm getting I'm just I'm getting antsy just talking about it because mm-hmm. I'm so claustrophobic. I mean. You know, if somebody sits too close to me, I'm like, what are you doing? You know, I can't breathe. That's why Matt sits all the way across the house. I'm in another Um, room. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But Matt, you mentioned bread and water three times a day. Now, I don't know if you know why they gave prisoners bread and water. It everybody thinks, oh, well, it's, you know, like just crappy food and that the bread and water is the punishment itself. It's not the bread and water started because if you eat nothing but bread and water for a couple, three, four days, it basically becomes cement in your intestines. So not only are you having to deal with the deplorable conditions, but now you've got a rock basically in your belly. 
you're constipated, you can't go, the pain from that that it's causing in your intestines is just an added bit of torture. So it's not, you know, it's not, oh, hey, we're going to deprive him of good tasting food. It's like, no, we're going to make sure he is in severe pain, mental and physical pain inside and out. So not a good place at all to be. I always figured it was the cheapest thing to give them. And I mean, it, and, and you know, it may have been. It probably is, yes. But it was a it was a longstanding torture technique, and it started, if I'm not mistaken, it started back in medieval England when they wanted to continue torture after torture. Yeah, you know, it was just a continued uh, torture sentence for people. You know, because you were just you were hurting before you went in to the torture room. You're hurt when you got out. Ah, and the only yeah. thing you could eat is basically this concrete mix yeah. that's about to set up in your guts. So kind of on that note, the prison hired a physician to keep the inmates somewhat healthy, but provided no pharmaceuticals. Any drugs were required to administer to the inmates had to be purchased using his own salary. So you can imagine how many were actually bought. Mm-hmm. Between May and November of 1873, the overworked doctor reported 67 illnesses in a population of 21 inmates. That's about three maladies per prisoner during a span of six months. These sicknesses can mostly be attributed to the crowded, unsanitary conditions of the prison itself and to the poor quality of food provided to the inmates. Since the prison was operating on a shoestring budget, It had to feed the inmates with what the territory could provide. Therefore, few fruits and vegetables ever found their way into the diet, and the inmates usually made do with a menu heavy in proteins and starch. Yeah. There again, if you eat nothing but proteins and starch, you're going to be in some serious doo-doo. You're going to find no... No pun intended. You're you're not going to be in... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nothing nothing's yeah. happening you're gonna be in no doo-doo yeah you so. you go you're gonna be stuck yeah you, you could just start fill it up <laughs> and it's gonna re- eventually reach the top of your neck and you're just gonna drop over yeah you'll that's just all. die from I'm bread full. and water yeah you know that's it so there were obviously i mean this this should come as no surprise but there were several escape attempts during you know the history of this you prison. don't say yeah I don't, I don't know why anybody like, would want to stay. It's like checking out of the Ritz-Carlton. You right? know, why would you want to leave? Exactly. You know, it's so nice in here, but I'm going to bust out. Yeah. You know? Perhaps because of punishments like the whole, some prisoners wanted to get out. So in 1902, the inmate stable boss of a barn outside the walls named Thomas O'Brien drugged Warden Connolly's dogs that he used for hunting down and tracking escaped convicts, he stole Connolly's prized racehorse and escaped. Now, O'Brien ended up leaving the horse, the bridle, and the saddle in a nearby pasture, and he disappeared for 18 days. After the 18 days, he turned himself in. He was paroled in 1903, and he quickly published a controversial book called Infamy Immortal, and it described his treatment at the hands of Connolly. The book caused a minor stir, but really nothing came of it. Yeah. Now, a more serious escape attempt happened in 1908, and it left Deputy Warden Robinson dead and Warden Connolly severely wounded. It was Connolly's habit to hold what he called a warden's court, 
each morning where inmates could air their grievances. Now, at six foot six inches or 1.98 meters tall and weighing roughly around 300 pounds or 140 kilos, Warden Frank Connolly was an imposing man to say the least. And he considered himself more than a match for any of the men that he brought into this court. And what his physical build couldn't handle, his 40 caliber pistol, he felt could take care of it. So he was. He was shown just how vulnerable he was, though, on the morning of March 8th. Deputy John A. Robinson admitted men that were lined up to speak with the warden, and he was rushed by four men, W.A. Hayes, C.B. Young, Oram Stevens, and George Rock. Hayes managed to get past Robinson and burst into Connolly's office, waving a knife and threatening the warden, now, Connolly drew his pistol and fired twice. He hit Hayes in the ear. Now, the remaining three inmates rushed in, and Connolly fired again. He hit George Rock, who retreated from the office. Hayes got back to his feet, and Connolly shot him again and threw him into the hall after Rock. Connolly then went to help Robinson, who was on the ground underneath Rock. Rock had already slashed the deputy's throat and was stabbing him when Connolly threw a chair at him, and then Rock turned on Connolly. The warden fended the armed man off with the butt of his now empty pistol, and the escape attempt was ended by the end of a billy club wielded by guard E.H. Carver, who had had to break through the locked door to the hallway. Deputy Robinson had been killed, and it took 103 stitches to stabilize Warden Connolly. One of the slashes from Rock's blade had come a mere eighth of an inch from severing the warden's jugular. And he carried that scar from that wound to his deathbed. None of the rioters died, however, and Connolly made sure they were all fully healed before bringing them up on charges. Rock and Hayes were both given the death sentence for the assault. Stevens won his acquittal and served his original sentence. And Young's sentence was extended to life. Connolly oversaw both of the executions, Rock on June 16, 1908, and Hayes on April 2, 1909. The men were hanged using the upright jerker method. which used, What is that? I'm telling you, it's not pleasant. <laughs> it, it used a 300-pound weight to jerk the sentenced man from his feet. This method was supposed to snap the neck, but it failed in both instances. Rock and Hayes were the only two men to be executed within the prison walls. So can you <laughs> That sounds very unpleasant. Yeah, that that's not good. So it's supposed to it was supposed to be, I guess, like a quick, you know, more humane in air quotes way of killing them because it it'd be real quick, snap, boom, yeah. pop the neck, but it didn't work. So you just basically got ripped off your feet by 300 pounds and then you were strangled. What, they th throw it over a rail or something? I think it was a drop, tech, like it was on a, a pivot bar. Oh. And they okay. would drop the weight connected to a rope that ran over this bar and then connected to the man's neck. Yeah. Okay. And as it dropped, okay. it yanked him up from the other side. Yeah. So kind of like the trap door, but you didn't need a trap door. You just had a big so old reverse, weight. Reverse trap door. Right. They're going to launch you. Yeah. 
It's the it should have been called the upright launcher method. <laughs> it's a trebuchet. Yes, there you go. <laughs> and a big word too. I can't even say territorial a, and you can say five, trebuchet. That's a five dollar word, right? right? There. We don't use them expensive words here on this show, Matt. <laughs> Take it back. So along with the escape attempts, there were also riots that happened. And we'll talk about a few of them here. Now, it, we talked about the intolerable living conditions, and it led to about three riots at about the same time in the later 1950s. The first riot was called the P riot, and that's P-E-A, not P-E-E. <laughs> and that's what I was thinking. Yeah, no, not P-E-E. It's the P-E-A. <laughs> it took place on July 30th, 1957. When the members of the prison band refused to pick peas in the garden, which was the prison yard, the temperature was hot and the band members were used to being left alone, if not coddled by the prison staff. One member flatly refused the order, which won him time in the hole. The other members decided to work. But after one member flicked a pea at another, the job quickly turned into a foliage destroying free for all. The destructive attitude of the attitude in the garden quickly infected the rest of the prison. The inmates rushed from the cell blocks to take part in the destruction. The guards on duty were quickly overrun and locked into the cells. A standoff between the prisoners and government officials, including Attorney General Forrest Anderson and about 200 National Guardsmen, lasted about 24 hours. The warden, Faye O'Burrell, was out of town taking delivery of an inmate from Indiana who had escaped years earlier. The prisoners clamored for better conditions, better food, better mail service, and the firing of Benjamin W. Wright, the man in charge of Montana's relatively new parole system. Anderson offered an eight-point program which sated the prisoners, and they retreated to their cells without bloodshed. Upon Burrell's return, however, he revoked the program drawn up by Anderson, claiming that he had not and would not negotiate with convicts. So the pea riot, kind of a, kind of a thing, kind of not. It's a prison riot that started as a food fight. Exactly. <laughs> it, yeah, it's basically a food fight that got just a little bit out of hand. Yeah. You know. Now, the second riot happened on January twenty seventh, nineteen fifty eight. During a tour of the prison by the Montana Council of Corrections, the inmates instigated a twenty four hour sit down strike in which they refused to report to work, ignored orders from the guards, and loitered about the cell house corridors. Warden Burrell ordered that the lights and heat be turned off, which in January meant many hours of frigid darkness. The cold, hungry inmates returned to their cells and, for punishment, for a week were refused mail and access to the canteen where they could purchase cigarettes, candy, and other sundries. So this is basically just a... It's a hunger strike, basically. Yeah. But let's now get into the big daddy of the riots. This is the one that we mentioned in the top of the episode. Yeah. This is the one that caused a lot of media attention. And the one that Matt and I kind of feel like probably has the biggest hand in the stuff that happens now at the prison. Mm -hmm. So this happened in 1959. And just to go ahead and tell you, this story gets a little graphic and 
If there's any kiddos listening and you don't want them to hear it, you may skip ahead a little bit. It's not too bad, um, but I'll try to keep it to a bare minimum. I mean, it's less than what you would hear on like a true crime podcast, but it'll still get a little racy. Now, this is a riot, and if you want to live, Cap, do what I say. This was a quote by Jerry Miles, the instigator of that 1959 riot. Now, Kevin S. Giles wrote a book titled Jerry's Riot, the true story of Montana's 1959 prison disturbance. So go check it out if you want to read the whole thing about this. Yeah. Because we'll just give you a quick synopsis. Because, yeah, because looking into a lot about Jerry Miles, he he's a bad guy, but he's an interesting character. He he lived a a ridiculous lifestyle. And he his mother was a transient. So as soon as he was born, he was put up for adoption. So he was essentially an orphan. And he, he just he went from, you know, one prison system to the next and and liked it. You know, he in fact, he preferred it. So, you know, keep that stuff in mind as Adam kind of tells you about how this how this played out. Right. And you can find all that that Matt was talking about in that book. So mm-hmm. go check that book out. Now, at the Montana State Prison, guards had scant equipment, little training, and great fear they would lose control in a riot. Check forgers, rapists, and murderers were all thrown in together, like Matt was saying earlier. The foreboding prison was, by some accounts, one of the worst in the country. The Montana State Prison operated with a con boss system. You remember I said the stable boss from the other Mm -hmm. thing. This will kind of tell you what it was. The conball system in which a certain prisoner ran industries within the prison, which gave them terrific power. Then, in 1959, a new reform-minded warden from Wisconsin, Floyd Powell, broke up that hierarchy. A career criminal who'd spent time in Alcatraz and an unseated con boss, Jerry Miles, had been in prison for about 25 of his 45 years more interested in gaining power in prison than living outside the walls miles stalked young men for sex earned the nickname little hitler for his remorseless domination of the prison and had he not been a psychopath he might have been a scholar giles wrote he had a very high iq he took two iq tests in two different states and was like I think a 130 on one of them and a 145 on another. So pretty high IQ for someone, you know, in 1950s in prison. Now, Miles carefully planned the riot and his escape. Another prisoner tossed gasoline on a guard and Miles lit a torch made from a mop and thrust it at the drenched guard who surrendered his key and rifle. He was taken prisoner along with 25 others. Inmates ambushed guards and then took over a second cell block and the ammunition stored there. Slashed with a clever shot, Deputy Warren Ted Roth was murdered in the uprising. So Roth was shot in his office. Yeah. And they stormed in, boom, shot him down in his office. He didn't have time to react. Now, I I heard conflicting accounts as to who actually shot him. Um, one one. One or two accounts I read said Miles did it, and several others said that Smart did it. Right. 
I I read quite a few that said Smart did it. Yeah. I think the number it it was outnumbered that Smart did. Yeah, it. I think so, I think that that that's the general consensus is right. that Smart did it. And Smart was, I, I don't have it in my notes, but Smart was actually was Miles's lover in yeah. the prison. And so they had a, a very tight bond, and they were the two that were basically the head of this riot and the instigators, smart kind of following along with Miles's lead. All told, the prison was under inmate control for 36 hours. It drew international media attention until the National Guard troops stormed the prison. Then, the murder-suicide of Miles and accomplice Lee Smart ended the riot. Not willing to be captured and held prisoner, Miles and Smart committed that murder-suicide at the top of the tower stairs. In an interview, one of the museum directors, Sandy Petty, said their intent was that it would be a bloody mess when the guards got there. The second man up the stairs slipped and fell. He didn't know what had caused him to fall, but he reached down and felt something and he picked it up and put it in his pocket. He had had this thing for about 60 years, and one day he brings it back to Sandy Petty and says, I've had this all these years, and I think it should belong back to the prison. And he dumped out of the bag and into her hand the jawbone of Jerry Miles. So the violent bloodiness of that murder-suicide left his jawbone part of the way down the stairs that a guard slipped on. Mm-hmm. And guess what he slipped on? <laughs> yeah. Wood and water. No. The guards who found the bodies drug them down the many flights of stairs and displayed the two bodies in the prison yard as a warning to the other inmates. About 200 people, both prisoners and employees, died at the old Montana State Prison, and many believe that some of them have never left. Yeah. And, you know, one, there's a lot of cool things that come out of that story. So I'd, I'd really encourage you, if you don't go and read uh, the book Jerry's Riot, at least go and read a synopsis of it or, or read some uh, online articles about, about this riot. It, it, it's really, really interesting. One thing I thought was really interesting is the fact that when they were in this tower held up, for you know these 36 hours what prompted them to do this murder suicide wasn't that they had just decided oh well it's over no the national guard shot a bazooka mm-hmm. into that t- i mean you think about it, it's 1959 imagine if they did that today yeah well people would lose their mind right you know we got a prison riot going on and we know these dudes are up there in that yeah. tower we're going to launch a we're going to put a rocket launcher yep. out here we're going to blast right into that window and and the the damage from the bazooka is still visible today right and it wasn't shot from like across the town it was shot from just across the prison yard yeah it was like standing on top of the wall just across from that tower and like you said you can still see they didn't fix the hole there's still a big blown open hole there from that 1959 riot. Yeah. So we we did a lot of this, of history of, of how the prison came to be, some of the things that transpired, some of the interesting people that are there. And I'm going to talk about one more interesting inmate that was there 
and and this will make sense when I'm done with this story. But Stanley Dean Baker, he was a convict. He he was convicted of murder. He had killed a man and began to cannibalize his body, including eating this man's heart. When he was arrested, they found the fingers of his victim in a leather pouch that Baker wore around his neck. When Baker arrived at the old Montana State Prison, he had a copy of the Satanic Bible and a recipe for LSD. Mm-hmm. And this gave him the nickname, the, the, the Hippie Satanist. So Baker was known to perform satanic rituals and devil worship inside his cell. He would keep chicken bones. And whenever the guards would ask him a question, he would roll these chicken bones and read them and and then decide what he was going to (laughs) answer. You know, and so, you know, you go back to our voodoo episode, you know, we talk about, you know, using chicken bones and stuff like that to kind of predict the future. This is what this guy was doing. Yeah. You know. So again, all the time. Yeah. I mean, not only were was this prison full of bad people, it was full of bad people still doing bad things. Yep. And not mentally stable people. Right. And so I like I said, this would make sense at the end of the story. All of this stuff just goes to the thing that that, that I, I sound like a broken record when I say this. It's negative energy. It's negative energy. And that that idea of the stone tape theory mm-hmm. when you're talking about all this negative energy happening over a hundred years inside a, a stone fortress, essentially, you know, so if you, if you believe that that energy can seep into the stones there, then this prison is still hanging on to it. And if you believe some of the stories that we're going to tell you tonight, um, there's still a lot of activity going on mm-hmm. inside a closed prison. So one of the one of the first stories, and and these are going to be some of the best because these are the people that are there all the time, comes from two tour guides uh, that worked at the prison, uh, Melanie Sanchez and Rhonda Martin. And they would lead weekend ghost tours um, for the old prison museum. And... In this uh, interview, they recounted the scariest experiences they've had while working at the prison, um, including things like disembodied voices, footsteps, scratches, um, and feeling like you're uh, being choked, which that's a terrible feeling. Mm-hmm. So near the maximum security cells where the, the, the guides encourage people not to go alone because of all the activity. Uh, Melanie and Rhonda were coming down and, and the door that leads up to the rest of the cells is locked and the general public doesn't have access to this area. Probably good. Yeah. It's not, it's not necessarily a part of the tour other than saying, here's this door. You can't go there. Um, but when they, when they walked up, they noticed that it was really, really quiet and, They kind of got the feeling that something was there. And so they called out hello and it echoed through throughout the the cell block. And then as it quieted down, they hear an obvious woman's voice screaming, help, just screaming. Now, you can imagine there's not supposed to be anybody in there, Mm -hmm. much less a woman. And now they're hearing this voice screaming for help. But 
never found anyone there that, you know, they could attribute the voice to. Wow. Um, but they, you know, they described it as they were looking at one another like, this really happened. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're we're standing here. We we didn't just, one of us didn't make this up. This is, we both heard this. Right. Um, they, uh, they said they were locking up one night and thought they had heard something musical. And so they went down uh, to where there was a piano and no one was in there. They got a little bit closer and they could hear the piano playing by itself. And uh, Martin said that uh, Rhonda Martin said that this was just her and her husband and there was nobody else, you know, inside the prison at that time. And it wasn't a player's piano. <laughs> right. <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> now, that'd be a mean trick. you know. Right. <laughs> hey, let's put this player piano in this old, uh, right. old prison. <laughs> we'll set it for a certain time when we know they're going to be walking through. Oh, man. Um, but Sanchez and Martin said that they had taken a, a trip up to the what was termed the Death Tower, which is the tower where Jerry Miles and, and, and Lee Smart committed the murder-suicide. They said they had a voice recorder and a cell phone app that they claimed would translate ghostly messages. So they went up there and they're doing all this kind of stuff and they're, they're not hearing anything. And so they come back to the prison office and they said something weird happened when they played, uh, when, the, when they started to go and play back, there was a weird beeping noise coming from the recorder and they couldn't figure out what it was. And then they realized that the recorder was turned off. <laughs> and it's beeping. So, you know, just some really strange things. And like I said, you know, tour guides, they, they have some of the best stories because mm-hmm. they're there so often. If, if something's going to happen, they're going to be the ones that see it. Um, and the, the, uh, the prison has been just covered with paranormal investigators. I mean, I would say probably all of the the major ones that are on television have either mentioned or actually gone and done an episode there. Right. And countless amateur paranormal investigators have been out there. Um, they've, they've spent the night. They've spent weekends there. You know, they've had the run of the place and could go wherever they wanted. Um, you know, there's there's so much activity and so much evidence to, to wade through you. It's really hard to try and decide, is this legit? Is this a bunch of garbage? But so much of it is very, very similar in nature mm-hmm. that you kind of you kind of want to believe a, a good portion of these things. Um, one uh, one of these amateur, semi-amateur, I'd say he's he's closer to professional. He's just not on TV. Um, paranormal investigator named David Dick. He reported being in the restroom on the main floor of the prison. While standing at the sink, washing his hands, he's looking into the mirror. He sees who he thinks is a janitor walk into the bathroom and then enter one of the stalls. Now, when he turns around, the bathroom is empty and there's no one in the stalls. He's in the bathroom alone. Hmm. Now, you know, that's one of those moments, you know, where you're standing in this old prison in the bathroom and all of a sudden here comes a dude behind you and he's not really there. Um, another lady that was one of, one of the past, uh, directors of the museum, uh, Julia Brewer Smith. She says 
She was coming across the prison yard one evening and just had this feeling that there was something behind her. Right. But instead of turning around, she thought quickly and snapped a picture over her shoulder. Now, later when they were investigating the picture, all they could see was this strange vaporous mist. Hmm. So the investigators thought, oh, well, this is this is evidence of some type. You know, this this mist is, you know, it's an indicator of activity. Sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, I believe I'd buy that. Um, So they decided they were going to show it to one of the retired guards who was working as a tour guide there. And as and he was a skeptic, too. You know, he he didn't buy into all this. But, you know, he had worked there. He was good with doing the the prison tours and telling the stories. They showed him this picture. And as he looked at it, he said that he could see four faces of prior inmates who had died violent deaths while he was there working at the prison. Holy crap. And so, unfortunately, I could not find this photo. I wanted to see this so bad, but I I couldn't find this particular photo um, where I would be able to look at it and see if you can actually pick out any faces. I bet it's not online. And most likely not. The the group that collected this um, was called the Tortured Souls Investigations. They're a local paranormal group to the Mon- the greater Montana area, uh, especially around Deer Lodge and the prison there. Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't find it, but I really thought, man, that would be so cool. But, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't I don't know. But obviously this uh, this former guard, he believed he was seeing faces in this mist. So those are some individualized stories. But if you decide Hey, I'm going to be in Montana. Maybe I'll go take this tour. Um, it, it sounds really cool. It's it's not. They really play into this. And and one of the funny things is is this prison is like right in the middle of town. Yeah. I mean it yeah. it, it it wasn't when they built it. I mean they 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 built it kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but the town grew around it, and so now you've got this you know, former prison, these big stone walls. Right. It's just, I mean, you know, across the street is like somebody's house. Uh, castle you know? looking thing. Yeah. You know, you know, it, it's kind of like the one in Nashville, except it sits off the road more. You're right. kind of like, what is that over there? Yeah. You know, you're driving down the highway and you're stopping at the Mapco and you're like, is that a castle over there? Yeah. It, it looks kind of like that, right. except it's just right there on the street. So they, they've really embraced this thing and the community does Halloween events there and they they really promote it so taking this tour it's it's not going to be like you know trying to go and spend the night at the bell witch cave or something like that it's it's really geared towards you know having fun and enjoying this really unique building that's um you know that that's still standing and has all this rich rich history but what could you expect if you're going to take this ghost tour if you're going to go out there what should you be looking for? And I know uh, we ghosts. Yeah, ghosts. <laughs> hey, is any ghosts in there? Come on out. Let's play cards. Ruby dooby doo. <laughs> so kind of like when when Adam and I went and did the um, did a, uh, a a ghost hunt up in uh, Red Bull and Springs at the Thomas House. You know, you, you bring in your 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 camera equipment and your uh, you know voice recorders and 
you know, whatever else, you know, EMF detectors, EMF detectors, you know, most people don't have those. We we got one. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, you know, whatever you got, um, you, you take it out there. This is what you should be looking for. And this is what you might can, might can see. Um, so what, what would you experience on a visit? Many people have claimed to have been quote unquote locked into, into rooms, into cells, uh, around the area. Um, and when help finally arrives, the the unlocked door finally will open. Hmm. You know, so and there's there's several paranormal investigators that have recounted stories of being in different parts of the prison and not being able to go back through the door they just came. That's and weird. And they get help down there, and the door just opens. Hmm. You know, it's not locked. Yeah, something's holding it but shut. But something's holding it shut. Yeah. You know, so... That's one thing that I found on several uh, of several websites that happened. That would be creepy. In the max, yeah, in the maximum security area, there are many accounts of visitors feeling nauseated, experiencing vertigo, overwhelming sadness to the point of tears, and a sensation of being pushed or shoved, and even choked. Which we mentioned that earlier. A very common report is that of disembodied footsteps. They're often heard coming down the hallways or going up and down the stairs. Many times the footsteps are so clear that visitors will believe a staff member or tour guide is coming along behind them. But no one arrives. Footsteps have also been heard in the theater near the gallows, which was moved there to preserve it. Right. So generally the tour does not go in to see the gallows, but the tour guides and other investigators that have been granted access to the area you know, they will hear footsteps coming up and down the steps of the gallows and things like that and in and around the theater. Um, it's a very, very common thing. And, of course, they all say that it sounds like the boots that the prisoners were wearing. And we talked about earlier, some of them were stomping around in concrete sold shoes. Right. You know, so, you know, really unique sounds, you know, really loud sounds. I mean, you're, you're walking through a prison that, you know, is unoccupied. It's going to echo. These things mm-hmm. weren't insulated. You know, Adam's already mentioned about how cold and how hot these things were in the dead of winter and in the middle of summer, you know, so sound is going to carry, you know, so most people that would be going to take this tour are going to be wearing sneakers, right? right. You know, they're not going to be clunk, 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 clunk. So when you're hearing this, you're hearing something that most likely is not being produced by a staff member or a visitor. Mm-hmm. OK, um, EVPs, also a common occurrence. Uh, recording, recordings of voice asking or crying out for help are most prevalent. However, one group of investigators could hear a voice say Nancy. Hmm. Now, audible voices have also been reported and screams have been heard coming from the hole along with the cries for help. Now, you, you wonder, Nancy, what you know, why was that? you know, important. Well, part of that prison that was maximum security served as the women's prison for a pretty long time. I thought, I thought I had those dates written down, but I don't. So I apologize, but, but it did the, the area that served as the maximum security portion for the men's prison prior to that had been the women's prison. And so hearing a voice say, Nancy, wasn't, you think, why was a woman in, at a men's prison at all. It's because there were female inmates there separated from the men in the maximum security area. 
um, orbs. Orbs are also very, very common. Now, orbs have been seen and filmed in all areas of the prison grounds, and investigators believe that due to the sheer volume of people, the negative energy associated with convicted criminals, and the amount of death that occurred within the prison walls, the orbs are a visible... visible. <laughs> now I can't talk. Man, it's he's contagious. A, I, I've caught it. The orbs are a visual representation of the amount of energy that the prison holds. So... Um, we, we've talked about orbs on here before and, you know, if, if you want to, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, start watching some of these videos of orbs that are taken in the prison. Um, they're everywhere. Oh yeah. And, you know, and orbs are probably one of the most common things, um, that, that paranormal investigators will use as quote unquote evidence. Um, but you know. Whether you believe in orbs or whatever, it's it's really neither here nor here nor there. There's just there's a lot of it, and so most likely, if you start snapping enough photographs on a visit to this prison, you're gonna catch some. Right. You know, you're gonna see something that doesn't look like, you know, it was a funny exposure or it was a, a you know reflected light, anything like that. Um, you know, so take it for what you will. I mean. You know, orbs are fun. You know, you can usually catch them. And if you're an amateur ghost hunter, then most likely that's what you're going to be getting to yeah, begin with. Big evidence so, you know, so, for you. Yeah. If you're, you know, hey, it's pretty fun. I mean, I've been on a ghost hunt and I didn't catch any orbs. So, right. You know, go for it. Um, but as Adam and I have talked about in the past, you know, hospitals, prisons, there's so much death mm-hmm. that occurs in these places and there's so much negative energy that it it's no coincidence, at least in my mind, that these old abandoned places, um, even when they're not abandoned, they're just they're they've been they've been re reworked, right. you know, repurposed. You know, this prison's a museum now. Mm-hmm. Um that energy just hangs around. It's sure. still there. And Mainly because of all the negativity and and death, and when you're when you're hearing stories like the one about Jerry Miles and Lee Smart, you know what was involved and and the violent nature of the deaths and the attacks on the other guards. You just have to think, man, this there's something here that it's just, there's got to be, if this is real at all, this is going to be one of these places you're going to find some type of evidence. It would definitely leave an impression that you could feel decades and decades later. Yeah. You know, because like you said, it's some of the other places that we've covered and talked about it. It's the places with high emotions and a lot of energy and this being a prison, there's, energy of all sorts, emotions of all sorts there. Right. So it would definitely in, as you mentioned earlier, the stone tape theory, it would definitely get recorded in that. Mm-hmm. And that's a big thing that people use now as the stone tape theory, because it's now a new catchphrase for, you know, what people have always thought that mm-hmm. places of either negative or positive energy, if it's enough, it will hold that and resonate for hundreds of years. You know, and now we've just got the new catchphrase of stone tape theory, so we use it, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I like to think of when when somebody mentions that, 
even if they don't use that terminology. In in my simple mind, when it comes to this stuff, sometimes um, I I think that I like the word tape mm-hmm. because it gives you an impression that there's an event that's playing out right. over and over and over and over because the energy projected itself, the event itself projected itself on, on the land or the building. And so even if, even if it's not something like you're watching a movie, you know, this energy is replaying this over and over and right. over again. And every so often somebody is there to capture that. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody is there to, to feel it, mm-hmm. to, to hit that cold spot or to see that orb or to catch that EVP when this event is replaying. And I think that's why, and that's why tonight Adam and I went into so much of the history of this place and the events that happened because it really feels like the events and the people and the personalities that happened that that were at this prison made it the way it is today. Right. You know, it, it's not just a matter of hey, there was a prison and there were a bunch of people there. No, there was a prison that was built before Montana was even a state. Mm-hmm. You had Wild West style criminals being shipped there because they couldn't be held anywhere else. Right. You know, you had. You had wardens there that were, you know, like modern day Matt Dillon. You're right. You know, they they weren't going to. It's like, have you ever seen Cool Hand Luke? Mm -hmm. You know, this is kind of how these guys were. Big personalities, you know, crazy things going on. Psychopaths, you know, inside this prison. Horrible, horrible conditions. It's, It's just ripe. Right. For something like this to happen. Right. Right. So in conclusion, have you ever been to Montana? Have you, you know, been to Deer Park and seen this? Do you live there? If you have any pictures, send it to us. Um, Tell us about it. Are there any other prisons that you know of that are super haunted that you might think we need to cover? You know, if you're not in our Facebook group, join our Facebook group and we can talk about this. And, you know, post your questions or your comments there. You can email us at graveyardtalespodcast at gmail.com. But join that Facebook group. There's a lot of activity that happens there. We we talk a lot in there. Matt and I are pretty active in there. And a lot of our other members of the graveyard are active in yeah. there. And And we'll post some of the pictures that we have of the prison um, in the Facebook group. And probably on the website as well, um, just so you can kind of get a feel. But go and um, go go and look at some of these photos if you haven't already. It's right. it's pretty amazing. Um, but again, I I, I want to take this time to thank everybody again for for listening and and being a part of the graveyard. We really really do appreciate it. Um, we have uh, we have gotten reviews upon reviews upon reviews, and you have no idea how much that really means to us, but it's not just us. It, it makes, it makes the podcast easier to find and right. it just, it, it moves us up the charts a little bit further and it brings more people in the graveyard, which is only going to make this more fun. Oh yeah. 
And one of the reviews mentioned that you can hear dogs occasionally. And <laughs> my 13-year-old Jack we got, Russell. We got dogs going down. Yeah, my 13-year-old Jack Russell thinks we're done. Yeah. So it, you can probably hear her in the background. She's been getting louder <laughs> over the past 10 or 15 minutes. So we'll go ahead and end it with her dumb butt whining. <laughs> and like Matt said, give us a review. You know, join the group. Hit us up on Twitter so that Ellie will stop whining. I think that's why she's whining. She wants you to go join our Facebook group and all that. So, again, thank you for joining us tonight, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>